Hello, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. And we do have listeners from everywhere in the world. It's fun looking at our Google Analytics and just seeing people from all over planet Earth um, listen to the podcast. It is Friday, the 18th of November. The year is screaming on by, and it is episode number 68 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to tech, social media, cooking, fashion. No, that's the other podcast. I'm just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I am kidding. And with me, as usual, is my co-host, Kate Frappel. Kate is the design lead at Manage Flutter. Kate, thanks for coming back yet again to co-host the podcast with me. No problems. Um, we've got a fantastic show lined up. Uh, later on in the show, um, we'll play an interview that I did with Roy Benbanishti, who is from Sesame Enable. And Sesame Enable have developed an incredible technology for disabled people that cannot use a smartphone um, because they're disabled and um, you know can't use the touchscreen technology. And I had a fantastic chat with Roy when he was out here from Israel um, for a, confer- a conference. I was so impressed by the video that they showed that I, I grabbed him afterwards and said, um, come, I'd love to chat to you on the podcast. So that's coming up later. As usual, we talk about um, a couple of news items. Uh, we work in an industry that's so fast moving that it's even difficult for us to keep us uh, uh, up with it. So we like to give a couple of news items to help you keep the finger on the pulse, so to speak. And as always, a lot happening in the news items, uh, in the news. Um, Kate, Twitter have been under a lot of pressure for a long time about Mm. abuse on their platform, Um, racist tweets, um, you know, trolling, you know, targeting people with with vitriol, negative vitriol, and, and they've been under criticism that they haven't been doing enough. And, and Dick Costello, who was the CEO till about just over a year ago, even admitted that they haven't been doing enough. And yesterday, finally, they've rolled out a feature to help with this. And I actually discovered this um, you know, pretty early, I must have been one of the first people to discover this feature because it actually was nowhere online and no one was talking about it. And I suddenly saw this um, settings button pop up on my notifications, wow. um, which was pretty cool. And um, they've, they've rolled out a mute conversation feature on Twitter, which means that you can put in some keywords. Um, and if those keywords are in any at replies to you, um, they're not going to show themselves. So it's not going to affect your main timeline, right? Mm-hmm. So if, for example, just say the keyword dog, yeah. if someone tweets about dog in your main timeline, it's still going to pop up. But if they converse with you and at reply you something about dogs and you've got dogs in your mute, um, it's not going to be, you're not going to get a notification about it and it's not going to appear in your notification section. That's pretty good, isn't it? They, are they doing the same thing for direct messages as well? Um, no, they, they haven't rolled out anything for direct messages. Um, well, that would be really handy. Yeah, direct message is a whole other story that there's still spam issues and they're not mm. building out that product at fi- as fast as I as a lot of people would like to. Um, The other good thing with this mute button, you can actually mute an entire conversation. So if you've dragged into this Twitter conversation where there's, you know, two or three people talking and sometimes, um, you know, sometimes you land up being tagged constantly in a conversation. And and what people do now is they actually sometimes tweet and say, please remove me from this thread. 
like like a little Twitter war. Exactly, and uh, the, and somehow you've you know maybe someone sent a tweet to two or three people, someone's replied, and so it goes, and they keep and you dragged into all of this, but now you've actually got a feature to to hit a button that actually will mute the conversation, and it won't mute that conversation from your timeline. So that conversation will still appear in your timeline, but you're not going to be you're not going to get the notifications. Okay. I mean, can't you turn them off in your phone settings anyway? Well, you, but then you're turning off all notifications. True. True. And, you, and you don't want to do that. And a lot of people don't use Twitter only on the phone. They use yeah. it on TweetDeck. They use it on Twitter.com. So you can go back into your profile and find, find that, that thread of tweets and read it later? Yeah, it will still be in your timeline. Oh, great. Yeah. So... Um, Pretty good. I mean, it's still um, a lot of people saying it's, you know, still more needs to be done, uh, but it's certainly a, a step in the right direction. And it does show that Twitter takes this very seriously. And um, of course, um, our friend Donald Trump has, is a big user of Twitter and, and a lot of his supporters. And yesterday, um, Twitter suspended some alt-right members, which are, you know, part of this, this the, the right side of politics um, and um, I'm not exactly sure the backstory behind why they suspended it, suspended these accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Twitter Twitter operates in this. It's an open network. It's one of the few social media networks that allows um, adult content, so to speak. So Twitter has oh, got okay. n- Twitter's got no problem with um, you know. There's there's um, you know adult entertainers on Twitter that tweet out photos and videos, and it's all legit. You know, Instagram doesn't allow that and Facebook doesn't allow that. I know you can put filters on something like Manage Flitter to stop that. Can you do it in Twitter itself? To stop, um, yeah. I mean, on Manage Flitter, when you you can sort of, you know, filter out people that um, tweet offensive things. Yeah. Twitter's got a setting to filter out adult content. And I think when you set up an account, there's an option, is, is this a adult account? So it's sort of it's sort of like a self-moderating, you know, um, system that you can you, you can exclude those accounts. That's why you might not bump bump. To, that's why you might not bump into them. Okay. Well, as long as they're being honest when they set it up. Yeah, and it's part of the terms and services. It's it's fine. And I think mm-hmm. um, you know um, I saw a, a documentary on ABC or SBS, um, an Ameri- um, an English documentary on from the BBC. Um, you know about um some you know social media and adult workers etc and it's they all said twitter's twitter's their thing because they allowed they're allowed uh, on there yeah you're allowed on their instagram and facebook you're not so Mm. anyway that's twitter's got some some mute um some new, new mute functionality um another big story snapchat is only four years old and it's announced, um, not officially, but it has leaked that it's announced that it's um, going to be aiming for an IPO as early as March. Now, Snapchat can actually, what they say, confidentially um, aim for an IPO, meaning they don't have to let the world know because their revenues are less than one billion US dollars or will, will probably be when they IPO less than one billion dollars. Um, otherwise, they have to go public if they're going to, you know, above the radar. Um, so there's all these rules in the States. But some interesting facts about Snapchat. Let's just go through them because it is quite interesting. So Snapchat's about four years old. Um, they plan to raise, so to receive from the public and institutional investors um, 
about $5 billion. Once they raise this money, they're going to be worth, so the market cap, which um, the market cap is the share price times the number of outstanding shares. Um, and that's often a value of what a company is worth, right? Mm. So the market cap is estimated that'll be about $25 billion. Now, just to compare that, Facebook's market cap is three, currently is $334 billion. So you can see this, the massive size of Facebook, right? Yeah, uh, huge difference between them. Um, Alphabet, which is Google, is $537 billion uh, market cap. So mm. uh, Google's even bigger. Um, Twitter is only 13 billion now. Now the reason is because Twitter share price has just totally, totally come down, fallen. fallen. So Snapchat's going to be about 25 billion dollars. Of course, there's an Australian connection with Snapchat, right? Um, Miranda, there is. <laughs> yeah, Miranda Kerr's married to or engaged to Evan Spiegel. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So. Um, Miranda Kerr, of course, is a model from a very, very small town in New South Wales, Ganada. Ganada? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I, only knew, I only know about Miranda Kerr because she's now sort of gets quoted and talked yeah. about in tech articles. Right? Oh, no, I only ever knew her as a model. She's a model, right? She's a model, but she's marrying Evan Spiegel. Yes. So um, that's the Australian connection. So they're going to be raising, I think, four or five billion dollars. Face uh, Snapchat's got about 150 million daily actives. First, Twitter's. I think Twitter only quotes the monthly um, of 400 million daily actives or 400 million actives. They all sort of get a little bit slippery when they start quoting active user numbers. They all sort of measure them in different ways. So it's not always comparing apples with apples. Of course, Facebook's got billions and billions of daily um, users so they way ahead of uh, um, everyone else apparently they're making about 250 million a year at the moment and on track to make over 1 billion next year so you know these these companies facebook twitter um, obviously google snapchat they're really the rock stars of um, you know the tech industry it's really really hard to build businesses that scale this large um, and this big yeah, I was reading recently though, ever since uh, Snapchat turned down Facebook's offer of acquisition, there's been a bit of a war between them and the type of products they're releasing. I'm just interested to see how long it will take Snapchat to catch up to Facebook. I, I don't know if they'll ever get there, but who knows? Maybe. Um, they huge Facebook has got a huge, huge head start. Um, you know, Snapchat is still pretty niched. Um, and it's, I think, I think we've, but where Snapchat's got the advantage is that it's got the young people, the millennials, yes. and what happens to young people? They grow old. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so they, they, they grow they, with them. They grow with them and they can, yeah. then suddenly they can expand that platform, you know, and so, Definitely. and then, it, and then it begins and the cycle begins again. But they also market themselves as a camera company now. That's why they're going into things like the spectacles, that they might go into a completely different sort of niche than Facebook. And where I find Snapchat interesting is they've one of the few companies that, that are doing augmented reality, essentially, with all their filters, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's no one, I mean, do any of, do Facebook or Twitter, I haven't really seen anything oh, similar. Everybody, I was reading about this today, everybody seems to be copying Snapchat. Like they're all sort of taking, taking features off each other. So yes, you can get features in Facebook now, I believe. Because on um, 
Snapchat, the stories feature has been con- uh, copied by Instagram, I believe, and it's called. Um, yes, same thing. Story. <laughs> or maybe Instagram the Snapchat story. Maybe, maybe the the Snapchat one's called something different. I get confused. Snapchat between story as well. Mm-hmm. And today I updated my Facebook Messenger, and they've implemented the same idea as well, and they call it Messenger Day. Right. Um, so yeah, they they're all sort of copying and getting inspiration from each other. Mm. Um, so um, I'm, I'm interested to see how Snapchat hold their position, seeing that, you know, Instagram and, and Facebook are all stealing the same ideas from them. That I guess that the, the only thing holding them is the sort of the fact that they were the first ones in there. Yeah. And, you know, I think, look, I mean, it is they've got a different captive market audience so you know if they iterate in a different way and appeal to those millennials um you know they all got different cultures and they all touch a different sweet spot i mean for instance twitter you know at one stage i thought instagram would 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 catch up to twitter in the way that twitter is used for real-time live updates um at one stage people were using instagram a little bit more high velocity but then it sort of came back and sort of you know didn't didn't quite get there no, I, I can never see Instagram replacing Twitter. Never. I, Instagram's more like your your gallery, like your Facebook gallery, except you don't have to share it on Facebook. You can just put a single image on Instagram. It went through a phase, though, where, where um, celebrities and politicians were, you know, when they do like their update about something, their tour or their or something. So it went through a phase where they were finding a token photo and just up and 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 doing it all on Instagram and it still happens to some degree yeah. but somehow um, they mix it up with Twitter and Facebook now as well so it went through sure. it, it went through sort of a bit of a heyday and I was wondering um, you know if it could ever get there to become a high velocity t- type of platform but it didn't in the oh, end I still think they, they do it I've read plenty of articles where they you know leaked or or certain celebrities just stated something and their their primary source is their Instagram post. Yeah, sure. But it's, it's, I don't think there's any Instagram accounts that have that high velocity. No, I suppose not. It's, it's such as, in comparison to Twitter, it's much slower. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so they all got their different sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of orientations and and cultures and different cadences you know, and so I, I, I think there's room for all of them I mean I actually think there's room for more social media networks you no, know I don't know about that I mean, pe- <laughs> people are saturated but also for example if you take the old days of Facebook right when people mm. used to use the update feature to let people know what was really going on in their lives that doesn't happen anymore right because everyone's facebook accounts are so big and there's stories coming in so there's room for there's room for something a little bit more private um although i I mean i recently went through a lot of my facebook and sort of uh selected certain people to put them into like a filter of close friends and facebook does give you good tools for that yeah yeah it's just learning and remembering to use those tools well, that's Snapchat. I mean, I've, I've started getting into the story thing and I quite, there's some interesting people um, that you can sort of read their stories, even some you know, interesting tech people that seem to, seem to like it. I don't, I don't actually follow any celebrities or figure, figure people in my Snapchat. They're all just friends or people I've met along the way. They use it as a private TV channel. 
I guess. Know, doing little doing little clips. So there's, you know, they do, um, you know, some similar to a tweet storm where they, people will send out sort of five to ten tweets in one go. They'll do sort of three to four clips in one go talking about a topic and you mm. can sort of sit and watch them talk about a topic. So, yeah, interesting. But um, I actually managed to get hold of a Snapchat geek a little while ago, um, Suzanne Nguyen, and um, I had a bit of a chat to her. So we're going to just pop on over to this interview that we did and um, I asked her a couple of of, of questions about Snapchat because she uh, actually works with companies to to help them understand chat Snapchat. So um, let's let's head over to that interview now. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to tech, tech economy, and boy, isn't it interesting that we get to talk about tech because every minute of every day something is changing or lots of things are changing. And I stumbled across a really interesting person on Twitter the other day, um, Suzanne um, Nguyen. Did I get that right? Yeah, I have a poem. Is it all right if I share that poem? Please do. You win, we all win, you win. That's my last name, Nguyen. Let's talk Snapchat. Um, I mean, Snapchat started out as, I think the, the word at the time was ephemeral, um, um, sharing of messages, you know, and photos. And, and that was how it started, where you send a direct photo a di- a, to um, your friends and it lasts for, you know, whatever it was, a couple of minutes and it disappears. But over the last couple of years, um, Snapchat's evolved into a lot more than that, right? So. Snapchat is still is a messaging platform. Mm-hmm. People and most users still message each other through using 10 seconds or 10 second max. It goes from one to 10 seconds, whether it be images or videos. Um, but lately, uh, what it has involved to is becoming a media making platform. So give, can you give us an example? You don't even have to name names if you don't, if you can't. How a company went to using Snapchat um, in a way that's helped their organizational aims, whether it was drive sales or awareness or branding or yeah. something like that. Uh, L'Oreal is a good example. They used it to help drive traffic for recruitment for women, mm-hmm. millennial women. And they, they noticed a massive shift in growth in um, recruitment. So what was their content that they pushed out in Snapchat? What they did was they showed the behind the scene of L'Oreal. Right. And they also did a, a call out saying this is what is like working at L'Oreal. Please come and apply. And that's what they did. So they created like consumer, like short structured consumer content uh-huh. that talks with the millennials. What about, um, I see on Snapchat stories, there's a couple of media companies they've obviously partnered with and that put some content in there. Is that popular? Do people watch that on it's, Snapchat? Because I don't. Oh yeah, the, the Discover. Yeah. Well, for, I personally don't watch it because it doesn't feel like it's catered to me. Uh-huh. It's not even segmented properly. Uh-huh. It's just like these all these publishers just want eyeballs and yeah. they still have traffic and not everyone could afford or want to willing to spend X amount of money to be on that Discover page. But the amount of eyeballs on there is really high. So um, it's probably early days for that. They'll probably move towards a more targeted type of curated content where I could see the value if they somehow even using my Twitter graph, social graph, or, or the people I follow on Snapchat, they could, they could, they could target some, some content. So it's another, it's another content platform. But are the, the content that's pushed there, is it, is it done in that, that Snap sort of format? Of? It's different, actually. It's actually what it is. It's 
uh, they have a cover sheet, a uh-huh. cover title that's almost GIF-like, or GIF-like, depending uh-huh. on how you like to say it. It's almost like a a cross-media kind of way of consuming content. And that's what I like about Snapchat because they're experimenting. They continue experimenting with the way they're consu- we're consuming content. And that's probably why Facebook loves to copy everything that Snapchat is doing because it validates, if anything, Facebook is validating the idea that Snapchat is thriving. Okay, now you mentioned Facebook. Now, Facebook obviously owns Instagram as well. Instagram, I believe, recently copied Snapchat stories and and with their own feature that's similar. Um, what, it's what? pretty much the same. It's the same. What do they call it? They, they also call it, what, what do they call it? Instagram stories. So they even use the same name. <laughs> There's some new features on Facebook Messenger as well, right? Have you played around with Messenger Day yet? No, only I Australia, haven't. Only Australia and Poland, where are the guinea pigs? We're the only ones that are using Messenger Day at the moment. They want to see if what, it's... What's it called? Messenger... Messenger Day. Messenger Day. What the way they market it is right. like, check out the day of your friend. Right. And what... And, 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 and what... Talk us through that feature. It's the same. It's the same as Snapchat. It's the same as Instagram So stories. you can just just whack in a few photos and... And they last... Like, the only difference is I think they last for 15 seconds. So there seems to be quite a strong trend. Um, Twitter's the only one... That haven't well, they've they've had moments, but that's something quite different. That's more of a curated, um, y- you know, group of content around a theme. Um, so they haven't done anything around it. But it's yeah, it's interesting how they all draw inspiration from each other. They had their own Marco video. They had Vine. It was which is awesome. They had like an. Engaged Why did they kill Vine? Because they didn't look after properly. They didn't. Well, I think they didn't look after their content creators properly. Well, that's the same right. with Snapchat. They don't look after content creators. Yeah. That's the same with Messenger. Uh, even with Facebook, they don't look after content creators. I heard YouTube looks after their content creators only, really well, right? Yeah, it's the only platform that makes money for content creators. I but one million dollars, one million views, equates to one thousand. Dollars, which is not that great when you think no, about it. It's a lot it. of work. Yes. It's a lot of work. I believe I believe there's a there's a studio in LA that YouTube content creators, like if you at a certain level, you can just use the studio for free. Ten K. Ten thousand followers. Subscribers. Right. How do you know all these little facts? Because I love video. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you build your Snapchat followers? I mean, yep. I mean, how how did you build your Snapchat followers? How does Mark's sister build? On Twitter, there's a little bit of discovery. There's a, there's a bit of growth hacking. You can follow other people. You can. How does it work on Snapchat? One is for me. I started. I realized, like I said, that Snapchat is a great platform on building up your own TV channel. Mm-hmm. And people still have habitual habits of consuming content. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if I put a show about Tech Tuesday, people mm-hmm. can would come back and watch my shows. So, put regular content on there? Regular content? You don't have to, regular high-impact content. But how do they actually, like, do they find you on Twitter? Do they search for something? Do they, like, you know, there's no sort of, on Snapchat, there's, as far as I can see, there's no sort of surfacing of accounts anywhere. It doesn't sort of pop up and say, you'd be interested in it's Suzanne. Uh, so, so how do, you, how do people find you? Uh, one is like, I do a lot of takeovers on bigger accounts or smaller accounts uh-huh. to hoping to that there is about a few of them that love my content. And I generally find that because of the kind of content that I deliver, I have really high conversion rates. And high conversion engage rates as well. Within my audience are millionaires, CEOs, broadcasters, other Snapchatters. I have high quality people. So, so what type of account take? What type of accounts do I take it? Uh, uh, usually, what I do is like I like to take over people who 
are very different from who I am, but uh-huh. they're very strong broadcasters. So when well. you say take over, that means that... I take over the Snapchat account. Right. So for a day, Suzanne's the Snapchatter on their account. Yeah, I don't I don't like believing having long days. So I just say, here, I'm here for... I usually like do about 20 snaps, uh-huh. take over, give them really strong content, uh-huh. or leave it lingering and they have to follow me on my own account. Besides... Mark's sister and yourself. What are other some some interesting Snapchat accounts? Hackerpreneur is my favorite. Uh-huh. He's if you think I'm high level, he's uh-huh. more high level in terms of the way he delivers content. He's uh-huh. an information architect uh-huh. that works in the startup scene, and he Hack- hackerpreneur. Hacker- I'm gonna see. I'm gonna see if I can add him right now. All right, my, what I I should and do people is can add you, me on Snapchat as yeah. well. By the way, if you're listening and you want to add me, I'm gonna try start sharing some stories. Um, that are a little bit more interesting than my test ones that I've shared. But uh, Suzanne Yuen, um, curious geek of the future. Um, Follow me on String Story, like a piece of string and a piece of story. So yeah, you and we'll add it in the show notes as always. Um, string Story on Twitter, and then you can sort of QR code the um, the Snapchat. And Take a uh, photo and then add me and then reach out and say, I heard you from Monkey, It's a Monkey Podcast. Terrific. And thanks for taking the time to join us on the Into Monkey podcast. So that was Suzanne Nguyen, and we can link to her. We will link to her in the show notes. And um, you can always go to itsamonkey.com. We'll put the show notes up there. There's a full transcript, actually. So if you someone who wants to go back to something or send it to someone, you can check out a full transcript there. Um, and that's the news for today. Um, we'll link to the news stories And um, we're going to take a short break. And after the break, um, we're going to play the interview with Roy uh, Benbenishti from Sesame Enable, a fantastically interesting technology that helps disabled people use um, a smartphone. And we also chat to him about the tech startup scene in Israel. So uh, stick with us. Hi, my name is Dave Zarati, and I'm the customer support specialist here at ManageFlitter. ManageFlitter is a tool that helps you work faster and smarter on Twitter. With ManageFlitter, you can clean up and grow your Twitter account. You will also get access to useful Twitter analytics, social content scheduling, and much more. Go to ManageFlitter.com and start your free trial today. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. And as you know, we chat to thought leaders from around the world talking about everything tech. And I was at an interesting breakfast a couple of days ago, and I saw quite an impressive, quite an emotional video about um, a, a, a child that um, was born disabled, and um, unlike his peers, he wasn't being, he wasn't able to pick up the um, smartphone and play Angry Birds when he was four or five years old. And um, there's a company out of Israel that's developed some interesting technology that allows you to navigate a smartphone, which of course smartphones are mainly touch screens. Um, has developed technology to navigate a smartphone um, via head movements. And it was just such fantastic technology um, and um, that I managed to get hold of the um, representative and dragged him into the studio. And I'm happy to say in, in our Sydney studio from Israel, you guys in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem? In Caesarea. Caesarea, actually. okay. That's not too far from Tel Aviv. Not too far. Um, nothing's far in nothing's Israel. Nothing's far from... Um, I, I'm... I'm uh, would like to welcome Roy Ben Benishi from um, 
from Sesame Enable, which is the company that developed this product, into the studio. Thanks Thank so much, much. For, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, I'm humbled to be considered a thought leader in this uh, topic. Well, Thank you very much. It's a fantastic technology and fantastic, um, you know, the impact of this technology for people that need it, the, the, the difference in their lives must be pretty substantial. Um, it's amazing. Uh, if you think about it, um, We've had this mobile revolution for quite a few years now, and there are over 30 million people around the world that have been completely left out of this mobile revolution because they can't physically access the gateway to that technology, which is the smart devices. One question I had when I was looking at the demo videos, which we'll put in the show notes, which are, are very impressive. How come the phone manufacturers have not you know, how come apple or, or google have not included this technology i mean i i, I don't know maybe your long-term play is to uh, exit to them and we know all, all know how fantastic israeli companies are at exiting but um any particular reason why uh, this technology has been so marginalized by the manufacturers i, I think um to begin with this market has been largely overlooked it seemed like something um not life-sustaining, so there there wasn't much effort put into it, but Google have been substantial in the traction we have been gaining. Uh, and in this re recent um, operating system, Android 7, uh, they have incorporated some of our code into their API, and so now we're able to be an app only. And that obviously uh, provides a lot of options for people to get this technology and turn their own smart devices into touch-free devices. So yeah. Google have been helpful in, this, in that sense. Let's just take one step back. Um, one of your founders, actually, he was he was the the genesis or the inspiration for the product because he needed the product himself, right? right. So the story starts with uh, one of our co-founders, Oded, who is a computer vision expert. He went on a TV show to show off a game controlled by head movement. Our other co-founder, Giora, who is a quadriplegic, called him up, asked him to quit playing games and asked if he could make him a smartphone he could use to order flowers secretly for his wife's 65th birthday. And from there, uh, Sesame started. And three years later, we came out with the first uh, Sesame device. Fantastic. And um, is, it, is it Android only at the moment? Correct. Um, only Android allows us the permissions uh, or the access required to control the entire phone. We have had applications in the past working in iOS, but they would work as standalone apps. And our goal was to allow that gateway for people to control their entire device. Well, another plus for, I'm, a, I'm an Android fan, so absolutely another plus for Android. Um, Definitely. You know, to, for, to have people. That, that video in particular was, 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 really, um, was really quite special to see, you know, a kid that's never had the opportunity to play Angry Birds, which is, it's, you know, we don't think about the, um, there's 30 million people that, that can't touch a phone. Uh, I think it's a, a much bigger than that um, because these today, as sad as it may sound, most of our social interaction is based on these smart devices through uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter or just web browsing or connecting through a phone, just making a simple phone call. That's how we interact today socially. And so we can speak about social inclusion as much as we want. These people don't have the basic means of accessing that social inclusion and they're left out. And this is our way of connecting them into that world and letting them choose how they wish to interact. Now, what I found very impressive is that you don't need any extra hardware. So the app um, locks in your face, um, identifies you, and then attracts your head movement. Now, usually technologies that look 
the most simple are actually the most complicated to do. So th- explain to me a little bit about the tech behind this because it's, it, it seems quite incredible. Okay, so we have uh, two different solutions. So one of them is the, is the one that gained more traction so far, which is the head tracking. And there we use uh, some pretty sophisticated computer vision algorithms to identify uh, the user's face. It takes about a second to do that, a second and a half. Um, and then through that, we can control the way or uh, follow the way they are looking at the screen. And from that, we just put a cursor on the screen to where they're looking. And from there, they control the phone. So it sounds simple, but behind it, there's quite a lot of mathematics and uh, programming. The algorithms um, behind it would be, um, yeah, pretty pretty sophisticated. And I mean, it's pretty amazing that there's the compute power in the phones these days that can handle things like that. Uh, each of us is c- uh, carrying around a very, very powerful computer without even knowing that. I mean, in the past, you would need a gym to hold the processing power you have in your pocket right now. Fantastic. And t- t- tell us a little bit about the, the, the use cases. Um, you know, is, is there any particular, you know, is it, is it children? Is it older people? Is it uh, across the board? So it's uh, pretty much across the board. Uh-huh. Uh, most of our users are either uh, after a spinal cord injury or have some um, muscle disability, uh, ALS, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, amputees, people who have some disability because of an illness or stroke, or they're just bedridden for a while because of, uh, of an accident and they get their uh, functioning back. And so it, it really changes. So cerebral palsy, uh, we would get more children in that area because that's when they start uh, their uh, therapeutic process. But um, we get it all across the board. And you, you asked about function. It really depends on the person. So if uh, we had a business owner who had to leave his business because he had ALS, and that just enabled him to get back to managing his business and corresponding with his employees. A child would use it to connect to peers, maybe do his homework. We have children with cerebral palsy doing homework on a touch-free tablet. Uh, so it really, really depends on the person and what they want to achieve. And the idea is not to limit them and let them choose what they wish to do. And are there any people that are able-bodied people that use it because they actually prefer to navigate through this um, sort of user interface, so to speak? So the, uh, the other uh, solution we have connects to the existing joystick of a wheelchair. Uh-huh. Uh, some people find that exciting. Most people would see the head tracking and get very excited by it. But we need to remember that the devices are touch devices, and so they were created for the touch. So someone who is able to use uh, their hands to control the device would probably prefer to do it that way. Uh, but my son likes to play games with the head tracking. They f- he finds it more interesting. Right. And so yeah, there is something attractive about uh, controlling something with your head. And uh, the business model is it's a, it's a paid subscription? Or? Right. So a user, uh, if you're interested, you would download the app and have it for a while for free to try it out, make uh-huh. sure it fits your needs because we want to benefit your life and so not, not take your money. Um, and then if you find it fitting and it is uh, beneficial for you, then you would pay a subscription fee uh, monthly. So as long as you use it, you pay for it. If you stop using it, you don't pay for it anymore. Um, the other solution, the one that connects to the joystick, is you would need to buy the technology off right. of us. And it's a one-time payment, and then um, you just connect. And um, what are the subscri- what's the price points? So right now, uh, it's free. Uh-huh. Uh, we put it on the market, and it's free for now to download. Um, and starting uh, December, it would cost $25 a month. I mean, what, what an incredible world we live in that for $25 a month, someone 
who um, cannot, you know, navigate through a smartphone gets access to a whole new world. I agree. This I mean, I mean, that's wonderful what, times. Wonderful I mean, times. I mean, that's what innovation and entrepreneurship. That's when it really just just shines. You know, for twenty five yeah. bucks a month, someone's life gets changed. Yes, and if you compare it to other um, assistive technology, that's a very very low price to pay to get connected to this revolution. And the fact you don't need any special hardware for your for your Correct. for your phone solution is Correct. fantastic. So, if, if your phone runs Android seven. Thanks to Google, you can now just download the app and start using. So tell me a bit about the company. You guys are obviously funded, I assume. So, so far we have been uh, quite lucky and uh -huh. most, of, uh, most of the money we have is based on uh, winning awards. So we got uh, $1 million from the Verizon Powerful Answers Award and we started a crowdfunding uh, campaign. And right before we finished that, we got that Verizon prize. So we gave back all the money we got from the community through uh, distributing free devices uh, out. Um, in Israel, we have a project in which uh, anyone in Israel who needs that um, this our technology will get it for free through very generous funding from Google.org and a local NGO, Beit Isa Shapiro. So if you need it and you're in Israel, you can just call them up and they will come and give you our technology for free. Um, besides that, we've won several other awards and that has gotten us so far. And now we're searching for investment to widen our market and go out and get, get it to everyone who can use it. Um, how big is your team? So uh, we're currently six, uh -huh. uh, so we're a pretty small company, uh -huh. uh, mostly focused on uh, development, uh -huh. and that's exactly what we're aiming to uh, enforce, just get more developers and marketing and get our product out there. And I mean, y your users at the moment, are they mainly Israeli or, you, or, or you, you're getting traction already from around the world? So through word of mouth, we've gotten, we have users all across the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, most of them, obviously, since it's given out for free in Israel and it's gotten a lot of media attention. So 75% of our users are Israelis. Uh, but the rest, just through word of mouth, we have uh, almost 200 users across the globe, uh, anywhere from Saudi Arabia, to Egypt, South America, North America, the East, just you name it, we we'll probably have a user there uh, using our technology. I mean, it seems like the tech scene in Israel is, um, you guys aren't afraid of deep technology, right? In, in Australia, we, and I think at, at one of the events I've been to at the Spark Festival, there's a little bit of talk about that, of the, the, the products in Australia versus, versus Israel, where, um, you know, there's, in Australia, it's more, more platforms and marketing type, you know, you know, this X for Uber, y, you know, like, like Uber equivalents for different type of markets. Um, but in, Austra in Israel, the, the, the technology just it seems like you guys go deep very often. I think it's something, uh, it relates to the ecosystem in Israel. First of all, the culture in which we are encouraged always to take chances and to challenge authority and to try to look at things different. So it doesn't really matter what the technology is, we'll probably try it at least and try to find a way. And so if you would look at the accessibility market, which is relatively considered a small market, and it's not small at all when you mm -hmm. look at the numbers, but it's considered small uh, as opposed to maybe cyber technology. Um, we are not fearing the risk of trying something that could start off as something small. If you think of, uh, for example, um, voice type, uh, voice typing technologies, mm -hmm. uh, they started off as an accessibility product. Now we, everyone uses Siri and OK Google and Dragon uh, for sending text messages. So it's just it's just a means of being fearless and willing to to, to give it a go.
And um, there's a lot of talk about, I mean, there's a famous book, The Startup Nation, um, which a lot of people have heard of. And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, Israel's held up as a, as a, as a sort of fantastic example of a, a small country with very few resources that has created you know, quote unquote, an ecosystem. I was interested to hear yesterday that um, in one of the talks in the morning um, that that despite common belief, the ecosystem didn't just naturally organically evolve. There was an intent in the 80s where the government um, shared the risk with some venture capital funds. Correct. So we're here, I think it's an example of how things work in Israel. We're here uh, on a mission with the Australian-Israeli Chamber of Commerce and uh, with a lot of interest from the New South Wales government to try and share from our experience of the Israeli ecosystem here in Australia and here in in Sydney, New South Wales. Um, And the government um, has always been very, very... uh, straightforward with trying to help these new uh, businesses. So through the Office of the Chief Scientist, where you can relatively easy get a grant of a substantial amount to get you through the first stages of a startup, that could be the world of a difference for a startup Absolutely. to just get that funding. And that's government. And the program you were talking about in the 80s continues now of uh, giving out money to venture capitals to take the risk. And the government would say, if you lose that money, you don't have to pay us back. But if you do, we get um, we get some percentage of the profits. That, that, and that, that's the interesting part. They get the upside as well, right? Right. right. And and the government actually, uh, it was a very very innovative way to look at funding, and the government actually made a revenue stream out of that, which is it's kind of amazing. That motivated the government to keep on doing um, these things. And the chief uh, chief uh, scientist office has changed its name to the Innovation Authority. Uh, trying to be more appealing, more innovative, and think of other ways, including a collaboration with the New South Wales government to find a way to help businesses in us in New South Wales and Israel to collaborate together and receive uh, mutual grants from both uh, governments. Um, one of the criticisms, I guess, of the Israeli ecosystem that I'm hearing is that, ironically, that you guys are um, a little bit too good at your exits in the sense that there's a little bit of criticism that you build companies and exit them, but you know, what about building sustainable companies that you hang on to? Because whether it's Waze or, I mean, the list is endless in the old days, ICQ or you know, all these companies that, that got acquired mainly by American, but not just the Viber, I think, got acquired as well. There was also an Israeli company. Yes. Um, what's the latest thinking around that? So I think um, there are a few reasons for that. First of all, Israel in itself is an extremely small market. And so every startup in Israel starts its first days thinking about its global appeal. So from day one, you start thinking, not necessarily on an exit, but how to reach global markets. And when that gains traction, obviously, big companies from abroad uh, gain interest. Uh, But there has been quite a lot of talk in the recent years about the ability to create sustainable businesses that stay inside of Israel and are owned by Israelis and become big on their own without without being purchased. And in Sesame, that's one of our beliefs. We want to do, uh, to do good, but also to do well and to be sustainable by our own without the need for someone else to, 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 to lead us through. 
And I sense that crowdfunding has become um, a, a pretty popular mechanism in Israel. There's There was the... It, the product hasn't been released yet. There was that handheld product, I think it's called Scion, that analyzes your food oh. and, and it gives you a breakdown of the nutrients or the constituents. Yeah. And I think they crowdfunded a huge amount. Right. So, so we did as well. Crowdfunding gives you access to funds at a very early stage. And especially if you look at the, at the impact market of social responsibility, it's very attractive to private people to try and and take a stance and, and, and influence in that way. And so without having to go to a very large VC and show a product and a business plan and go into all those details, which you, you need funding to get to that, uh, you could just reach out with a good idea, with a good pitch, with a prototype. And if you have access to that market, you can get those funds and start, start the business. It wouldn't be good to base your business on crowdfunding, but to start it off, to get those initial, uh, to get that initial budget, that it's, ama- it's an amazing tool to use. Any quick thoughts about uh, the Australian tech scene in the tech ecosystem and compared to, compared to Israel? I know our cultures are vastly different. Australia comes from a, a very Anglo heritage. I mean, I, what's interesting, I was telling my friends in the talk yesterday, one of the talks that I went to, um, one of the chaps who uh, uh, went to the Australian landing pad in Tel Aviv said, um, politeness in Israel can actually be seen as aloofness and rudeness. So there's col- we, we culturally we're worlds apart. But what's your very initial sense of the tech scene in Sydney so far? I know you've only been here a couple of days. Yeah, so. I, I'm very impressed. First uh-huh. of all, it looks like we're right now in changing times, and there are lots of opportunity here. Obviously, with the NDIS changing the whole uh, the whole ecosystem of uh, for people with disabilities, but also there's a lot more knowledge about startups and ecosystems and impact investing and just VC investing and moving from investing in in mines and banking to businesses and technology. And I think it was beautiful to see the things that people do here. And and I agree with you, there is a cultural difference, uh, much quieter, more uh, <laughs> calmer, um, maybe a bit less risk-taking, uh, which is something you, you really need in, in a startup. But I don't think it's that different uh, as it may seem initially, uh, because people here are looking to make a difference. They are looking to, to be successful, to change the world, change the way we do things. And so we're not that far away. And in a sense, we're quite similar since Australia is not that large of a market. And so in Australia, as we do in Israel, you would have to look globally to be really successful. And so that global reach, that global thinking, um, quite makes us quite similar in that sense. And I think your point that we actually did, you know, in some of the talks and sessions, people like to play up the cultural differences. But I think what's interesting in my travels and meeting entrepreneurs from around the world Entrepreneurs are all pretty similar, I, I right? Agree. You know, I whether I, you know, whether it's the vendor in South Africa that I that I talk to on the street, and they thinking about new ways to find margin and and new, access new markets, or whether it's in someone in Silicon Valley or or Israel, it's it's that entrepreneurial. Um, you, you know, when you get bitten by that entrepreneurial bug and you start seeing the world in terms of um, adding value and making a difference. Right. It's, it's, it's the same language. So we had the honor of uh, being part of the Global Entrepreneurship Summit uh, led by Obama um, last Fantastic. summer. Uh, Oded, our CEO, went there and won a uh, runner-up in a pitch contest. And uh, the amazing thing was there were hundreds of entrepreneurs from all around the world. And as you say, 
they're all pretty similar. Everyone does something completely different from agri-food to cybersecurity and ev anything in between. Uh, but they're all the same. They're trying to change the way things are done today. They're looking for that, that edge, that innovation, something else, something new. And most of these people, if you look at it, even if they're successful in one business, they don't usually leave the entrepreneurship uh, scene. It's addictive. You want to stay there, keep changing, keep innovating. It's once you go in, you, it's, it's a very hard. Yeah, that's a curse. It's a lovely <laughs> curse. I love it. I love it. Um, what's you know in Australia, a very big, um, growing entrepreneurial sort of segment is um, young female entrepreneurs. You know, in Israel, um, I mean, I know that you, you know they. In, in a way, there's there's a lot of equality there. They they go to the army and combat roles and in, in politics and and even politically Golda Meir and all of that. So ha, ha, has that filtered through to the entrepreneurial scene? Completely. I think um, well, there's obviously a ways to go uh, to go there, and there's still um, differences between salaries in the private in the public se sector between uh, uh, males and females. But it's not as big of a difference as you would see in other countries and. Especially in the entrepreneurial scene, you'll see lots of women. Um, just because that's um, that's how the scene works. You try to innovate. You come from uh, uh, the the need to change something, and so you'll see lots of women in the entrepreneurial scene trying to create businesses all across the board. Everything from fashion and design, which you'll see men there as well, to uh, food and ag agriculture and cybersecurity and financial companies, uh, social good and social awareness, uh, just everything, mechanics, you would, you would see it everywhere. So it's a very special scene in that sense. Um, I was pretty um, sort of amazed when I've spent time in New York, um, what an impact um, Israeli entrepreneurs have had on the New York scene, in a way almost more than the West Coast, maybe because it's closer in a little bit, but but also in the West Coast, but um, you know, there's some companies like Outbrain, some really big companies um, that are based in New York, um, that that are Israeli sort of CEOs and founders. And so I think um, it's not my area of expertise, but I think Silicon Valley has become a bit dense, a bit mm -hmm. a bit too busy, and sometimes uh, and and the East Coast is trying to give a fight and to. to establish itself as a center for innovation and entrepreneurship. They're working so hard at it. I mean, from, yeah, from, they're, they're from at all really levels trying. of government, they're really working right. hard to reinvent it. So if you look globally, then Silicon Valley is still the world leader, but Israel is not far behind and the East Coast is trying to fit in there and, and trying to create another center for innovation, entrepreneurship and investment and funding. And so exciting times, things are obviously changing all the time and you can look at Australia as well New South Wales government and all across Australia trying to promote this entrepreneurship trying to be uh, a startup nation is it still true that the number of Israeli companies listed on Nasdaq is is the number two after American companies I think it's it third after China, China? Right. But considering our 8 million people population, not, that's quite a lot. It's, it's not too bad. And is there much of a difference between the Tel Aviv tech scene and the Jerusalem tech scene? Because I know even though Tel Aviv and Jerusalem are so close to each other, they sort of, they sort of quite different mm -hmm. cultures. I believe there's even some words 
Someone was telling me there's some yes. words that are different in Tel Aviv right. and Jerusalem. Like yeah. the word for, for lolly or sweet, apparently, right. is different in the two cities. Uh, the word 200 is uh, pronounced differently in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Well, Israel is a small country, so uh, uh, half an hour, 45-minute drive away deal. is a different country. I mean, it, it would be like driving from Sydney to Melbourne. Uh-huh. Um, that's Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And quite a uh, similar competition between the cities. If you ask someone from Jerusalem what's the best city in Israel, oh, they'll say Jerusalem. The, there's no competition between cities. Yeah, um, <laughs> obviously. Uh, <laughs> uh, didn't expect you to say anything else. Um, I think the scene is different. Uh, Tel Aviv has been the center of innovation, entrepreneurship, and the VC funds. Most of them sit in Tel Aviv. But there is a change. Uh, present tense, uh, who came with us or brought us on this trip, uh, have been... Um, centered in Jerusalem on purpose to try and promote the scene there. And there have been quite a lot of companies coming out of Jerusalem. Um, there have been global companies setting up base in Jerusalem. Um, in the past, I think it was a bit controversial, but now it's just another main city in Israel that's worth investing in. There's the one big VC company um, in Jerusalem. I forget, I forget um, John Medvedev. John, John Medvedev, yeah. yeah um, that, that's his company is in, in Jerusalem. Yeah, I believe well. so. And I think most of the um, large VCs also have an office in Jerusalem just, just so they don't miss on the opportunities because since the tech scene is so hot, lots of the VCs are trying to make sure they're not missing out on opportunities. And so uh, where there's uh, technology and there's interest, you will find a company to, to try and get it. Rui, Ben, Beneshti, it's uh, been a fascinating chat. I, I really look forward to seeing the, the progress of, um, of Sesame and all your related products. I think it's a fantastic um, space that you guys are in. I'm, I'm glad we managed to, to drag you into the studio just the day before you, you back. Um, I just read today, actually, that Cafe Pacific is um, now going to be flying direct from Hong Kong to Tel Aviv. So um, for Australians... If you're Australian and you're listening, that's that's another way you can go to Israel. Actually, a good way to go to Israel from Australia that a lot of people don't know is actually via South Africa. Right, but um, I know that there is a plan to have a direct flight from Sydney to Tel Aviv. Um, they're trying to get it to work by the next summer. So that would be a 16-hour flight straight from Sydney to Tel Aviv. If that happens, that would be amazing wow. for business. I know they're trying to get a direct flight from Sydney to New York, but that's only going to be, I think, in 2020. Uh, and that's going to be a massive flight that, yeah. you know, also like a 20-hour flight. I think there's one one new plane coming out. But, wow, I didn't realize it would be that soon. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Uh, We're we far away from everywhere. We're on our own time zone. We just it's, it's, it's one of the the more challenging aspects particularly of doing a global managing like uh, you know all our users are in in in, uh, all over the world so it's 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 a little bit of a challenge but um 16 hours is the same uh, time it takes to fly from tel aviv to san francisco so that could make sydney a major hub they have a direct flight from uh, yeah you have a direct flight from tel aviv to san francisco so it would be just the same time to get to sydney and that could change some business decisions in the future what um, airline is that um, Qantas or LL? Or? Well, the the as the far system. as I know, as far as I know, the plan is to for Qantas to to start a direct flight huh. uh, to San Francisco. I, I don't know. I think LL is running that flight. But the Sydney, the Sydney, Sydney. I know it's uh, yeah. As far as I know, it's uh, Qantas. Wow, that'll, that'll be let's, really. Let's see. I don't know. I'm hoping it'll work out. Terrific, Roy. 
Hope you've had a fantastic stay in Australia. Hope you'll be back. And um, I'm, I may sneak over for a, for a tech conference in Jerusalem in January. So we'll and take you out to dinner. You're invited. Uh, uh, some of the best food in the world. It's, definitely. It's, um, that's definitely the one thing everyone comes back saying. Uh, that hummus in Israel is, I don't, I don't know what they do to it. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but we have so much more than hummus. You need to come and see it for yourself. Great. Thanks so much, Roy, for coming into the studio. Thank you very much for having me. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, I really, really love that technology. When I saw the video, which we'll link to on the show notes, um, it's absolutely fantastic. Where you see this young kid who has just never played Angry Birds and he suddenly just using his head, he can navigate around this phone and play Angry Birds. It's just amazing it's the little things in life you take them for granted take them for granted right it's like you know he wants to be like his friends and why shouldn't he you know and smartphones the user interface essentially is touch right and this and this sesame enable translates that user interface into you know directional using your head right wow yeah interesting technology and it's um not easy technology to actually it's, it's actually a lot, it, it looks a lot easier than it is oh the the creating of that i can't even begin to think where you would start so they yeah they they have to sort of you know monitor the head from various places and they also have to know that it's your head and it's all sorts yeah. of things and when gestures for the double click and the click and the um, and um, yeah, but uh, as you heard with um, Roy, it's going to be a pretty cheap prog- program, you know, mm. app. So, you know, for such a small amount of money, you got access to all the huge benefits of yeah. um, a smartphone. Um, Roy actually emailed me and he said, because we chatted in that interview that, you know, he was very excited that one day there's going to be a direct flight from Sydney to Israel and he emailed me a few times and said that information is wrong that information is wrong I don't think you know I think he got confused maybe with somewhere else oh with the flights yeah because currently you have to go through either you know Israel is like going to Europe you have to go from Australia you have to go via Bangkok or you have to go via Korea or I don't think Singapore I think Korea or Bangkok are usually the most common ways to go to Europe or to to, to Israel oh to Israel yeah sure yeah I mean you could go to Europe and then you can fly from anywhere in Europe to Israel but if you want to go the shortest way um, there's direct there's direct flights to Israel from Bangkok and Mm. from uh, Korea because I know there's been a lot of talk lately about a direct flight from Sydney to London yeah, and there's been a di- talk about a direct flight from Sydney to New York, which apparently is going to happen in 2020. There's a new Boeing plane that can mm. sort of 
have that capacity of mm. fuel and and range but um very very long flights i don't know how popular they're going to be i mean unless you're in business class or something you'll just get off that plane and you'll you'll need to go into hospital <laughs> to just be to yeah. be on a plane for 20 hours like uh yeah it depends also how long you were if it shaves any time off your total trip I mean, I can't remember how long I stayed in between getting him from here to New York, but the, the layover time, basically. I know, but it gives the body a little bit of a break, you know, mm. to, to be in a I'd small seat. I'd almost prefer seat. missing it, actually. I'd almost prefer a straight run. 20 hours is a long time. Maybe you can just sleep, watch a movie. Uh, 20 hours, <laughs> yeah. No, I, w- I would rather break it up, I have to be honest. Um, unless unless it's business or something special, Um but um, anyway, so he's so uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be a direct flight um, from Aust- Australia to Israel, but you never know. Um, but yeah, it was interesting talking to him about the tech scene as well there. I mean, it's, I've actually been lucky enough over the last couple of days to um, listen to some incredible Israeli tech entrepreneurs. Um, the one chap um, invented the USB drive and sold it to SanDisk for over a billion dollars. And so that's an incredible story there. Mm-hmm. And then I listened to the founder of um, Waze, the, the, which is not that popular in Australia, but it's huge around the world. It's, a, it's sort of like Google Maps, but it's done in a different way. It gets feedback from the cars automatically. Really clever. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that, you know, it's, it's sort of, that's you can see what's going on with the traffic and you can also even input information into there and the community gets feedback of something's happening there or there mm. and that was bought by google um, yeah, a while i was gonna ago. say it sounds a lot like the new google maps yeah so that was bought by google for also for over a billion dollars so mm. um listening to you know the tech scene there is just um probably only second or third to silicon valley in new york in terms of the depth and what's really interesting is a lot of the startups that come out of there very very deep technology you know mm-hmm. it's not just it's not just a marketplace or a directory or something like that you know you have things like sesame enable or or you have things like a usb drive being developed or something there's mm-hmm. there's very heavy engineering you know startups very very deep technology startups mm. why do you think that's the case i think there's a very very strong technology culture there okay. you know a very strong uh, sorry, engineering culture, hmm. you know. They like also, through their education system? Through their education system, you know, being a developer there is, is sort of s- the standard path. <laughs> you know, everyone's yeah. sort of <laughs> an engineer, tech startups are the thing. And also, you know, I think they have to, you know, it's life's pretty tough in Israel. Um, you know, someone asked one of these guys that I, I was at the talk a couple of days ago, you know, do you think Australia will ever... Um, reach the level of, of, of sort of innovation and entrepreneurship that Israel's at. And this chap said, no, because life's too good here. You mm. know, he said the, the difficulty and the challenge there sort of pushes them and you overcompensate in a way. And, um, you know, they've got a tiny country that's, you know, not, not that wealthy and they have to build companies that the world is interested in. Mm. So they know they can't really build a big company just on their local market there. It's too small. I mean, Australia's also yeah. small, but they're even smaller. They're 7 million mm. people. It's about smaller than the size of Tasmania, mm. you know, uh, whereas we are about, uh, what are we, 20 million or so, 22 million? About 22 there. now, I think. Don't quote me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, and the corporate world's very healthy here, you know. So yeah. 
for people to do start startups here they have to be uh, they really push themselves out of these fantastic corporate jobs uh, on a, on a mm. good thing and to work weekends in sydney australia where the weather's so good and the beaches are so available it's there, unheard it's, of <laughs> yeah i mean there it's, it's sort of like you know the, there's not that many corporate jobs you know it's 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 hard to make it in the corporate world there because there's not much going on so mm. the startup route in a way offers you you know a lot more and um it just feeds on itself it just really yeah. feeds on itself you mm. know um there's actually interestingly australia's put what they called a landing pad um, in a few cities for entrepreneurs and run these programs to um you know get exposed to investors and different cultures and be access to markets i think they got one in san francisco i think they've got one in seoul i'm not sure mm-hmm. um or, or and berlin i think they've got four but they've got one in tel aviv as well so if you're australian you can apply to to be in the landing pad um there wow. and they have six week programs and you can go over there and that's like an incubator and you can you know i'm not exactly sure in the the details Do they the connect pro- you with other um other startup founders connect with other founders connect you with potential investors connect you with the you know potential okay. marketplace it's a whole program yeah you know these days for um, wannabe entrepreneurs there's just such fantastic programs incubation programs and accelerators and you know conferences and it's really fantastic and it's um you know israel they also they 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 tend to once they have successes they come a bit like silicon valley they come back and they fund the next round of companies you know like the guys that made the money in paypal in silicon valley um elon musk um you know of course of of tesla and everything else he does um reed hoffman linkedin um you know david sachs zyama so you know all these guys sort of um even the one of the, fa- the you know the guys involved in youtube was ex paypal so you know that's what australia really still needs is it just needs a bunch of super successful companies and people will leave and then start these other companies at core success and so it leaves and you know and israel's been doing that for for quite a while but what i found very interesting in one of the talks which which and i actually think it was roy that actually said that was um that a lot of people think sort of Israel's tech scene just evolved sort of organically to be um good but it actually was by design in the 80s the economy was in a very poor shape and the government actually said to the venture capital companies the people that put money in the startups they said look we're going to co-invest with you um and we're going to share some of the risk we'll give you some of the money um but it means if things go well we get some of the money back as well yeah and it kickstarted the industry and it actually made the government some good money now it sounds like a definite motivation um and that sort of just just got the got it going you know because people always talk about you know government shouldn't get involved or should get involved because if they get involved it's just like a handout and it's not then darwinian enough and it's just supports companies that shouldn't survive and so there's this you know there are these two schools of thoughts but it's interesting that it was actually given a bit of a push yeah. by the government in the 80s Mm. Do we have anything like that in Sydney? I mean there's all sorts of programs in Australia. Um there's R&D tax concession which means if you do something um you know if you if you invest in activities that um 
lead to new learnings. You can claim a tax concession. So if mm. you develop an app and you're paying developers, essentially you're doing R&D. So you can actually get a bit of a tax break on that. There's something called the Export Market Development Grant where um, the government helps companies in Australia market overseas because export dollars are worth a lot of money to a company because you're bringing new money into the system. Right. right? So there are some... Um, some programs there so every country does something you know um but um i think as an investor you just want to be aware of them all yeah as an entrepreneur as well you know to take advantage Uh, but uh, you know countries need to actually know where the payoff is and 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 there isn't always payoff from these programs it's not a simple just throwing money at companies doesn't necessarily build great companies you know, no. sometimes companies with less money do better because they develop a sense of discipline um, of being mindful about what they do with that money. And it lands up being a healthier company than a company mm. that's just got, you know, a huge amount of, of money and they don't land up being disciplined. And that trickles through eventually and it actually sort of all comes to a screeching halt. So like a lot of things in like a lot of things in life, it's not um, not straightforward. No, <laughs> never. Anyway, that's uh, episode 68 of the It's a Monkey podcast. You've been listening to Kevin Garber and Kate Frappel. Um, hop onto our website, itsamonkey.com. You can comment on any of the stories. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. If you uh, know anyone who wants to be interviewed on the show, drop us a line. We have some great shows coming up in the next few weeks with some interesting entrepreneurs and um, you know in people involved in the tech industry and if you've missed it Robert Hazlitt um, from Fortune magazine was on sorry did I get the name wrong yes <laughs> <laughs> Robert Hackett Robert Hackett yes. thank you um, <laughs> Robert Hackett from Fortune magazine sorry Robert um, was on the podcast and we spoke about Zcash which is uh, a Zcash 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 <laughs> Um, aluminum. What? <laughs> it's Americans say aluminum. Aluminum. Yeah. Okay. Instead. Oh, of instead of aluminium. Yep. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and they say niche instead of niche. Niche. Yeah. But <sighs> Australians say drawing instead of drawing. Drawing. Yeah. Australians put an extra R in it. They go draw ring. Drawing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I say drawing. Yeah, that's what all Australians do. Yeah. But huh. uh, I've never I've never heard the drawing one before. Yeah, it's as South Africans when we come here it drives us bonkers. We all just go, <laughs> What's with the drawing thing? Where's the R? Anyway, in the previous episode we spoke about um, Zcash, Zcash, which is a new v- cryptocurrency where they've basically built it from the ground up on a new blockchain um you know looking at what wasn't quite right on the on the bitcoin blockchain and making improvements and uh, we had an interesting chat to to robert over there um uh, on the previous podcast so head on over there and there's um there's if you go to the site there's all the previous podcasts we have spoken to all sorts of interesting people for liban from evernote melanie perkins from canva correct yeah we spoke to her a couple of years ago you know and mm. so that's you know so we've had some really interesting interviews and i've got some interesting ones lined up in the new year so anyway that's enough from me i've hoped you enjoyed it and thanks for joining us in the podcast see ya